You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Good to see you all this morning, and welcome to Kootenai Community Church Adult Sunday School. We are resuming in the book of Philippians, and we are in chapter 2. And if you would, turn with me to chapter 2, and we'll pick up on verse uh, 5. Now, we left off on verse 8, but to bring the context, I want to read verse 5 and following. But before we begin, I'd like to open in prayer. So would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your grace each day. And we thank you for your word. As we open your word this morning and examine this passage, we pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit and that we would have a, a deeper understanding of just what your servant Paul was expounding on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have given us your word and we thank you that you provided us and empowered us and indwelled us by your Holy Spirit. So we ask now that you would guide us, and through all that we do this day, and through this fellowship, and through this worship service, that you'd be glorified. We just pray this in the precious name of your Son, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to read from verse 7 through verse 9 this morning, and we're going to be looking at... uh, Primarily verses 9 through 11. Paul was addressing the saints at Philippi once again. And his primary concern here was that of the unity of the church. He had heard while he received word while he was in prison in Rome that there was some contention in the body at Philippi. Because of his love for that body, he was praying for them. And now, as he wrote this letter, he had in mind the essence of bringing them together in unity. And so, as he wrote and penned this letter, he brings forth the supreme example of humility. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pick up in verse 7 so we get the fuller understanding of, I'm sorry, let's uh, pick up in verse 5 so we have a fuller understanding of the context of what Paul is instructing these saints to do. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant 
and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and in under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a wonderful text this is. Now, throughout the centuries, theologians have focused on this text and have somehow summarized that Paul was doing a theological treatise on Christ. He wasn't. He was bringing this example because it was a supreme example of humility, and he was using Christ because that was the highest form of humility that he could point to. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he first uses the humiliation of Christ, that is, the incarnation of Christ coming here on earth, leaving the glory in heaven where he celebrated the fellowship and glory with the Father and the worship of the angels, came here as a man on earth, fully man and fully God, and lived a sinless, perfect life, suffered and died, resurrected, ascended to heaven, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. Now Paul shows that Christ has something other than just that death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and bestowed the great honor of sitting at the right hand of the Father, but the name bestowed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to examine that to a fuller extent this morning. Now, since there have been books written on this text, just on verse 9 through 11, we're simply going to do uh, exposition on these verses. We can't possibly plummet the depths of what Paul has said in this text. But we do want to examine to some degree what Paul lifts up as an example to us. The last time when we considered the humiliation of Christ from verse 7 and 8, Paul moves on now to the great honor that God has when the name of God is bestowed upon him that is above every name. So we have the humiliation of God in verses 7 and 8, and then 9 through 11, we have the exaltation of Christ. So if we want to break that down, this is how this passage breaks down. So let's look at 
verse 9. For this reason, for this reason also, God highly exalted him. For what reason? Well, the reason Paul is referring back now to the humiliation of Christ. His coming here to earth, his living here as a man, his suffering and death, burial and resurrection. And then, now, because of this, God exalts the Son. He exalts the Lord Jesus Christ and bestows upon him a name that is above every name. He now has the privileges of God being bestowed upon him once again. Coming to earth, uh, living here in the incarnate state, he did not share the fellowship with the Father as he had. Now he is returned to the Father, and the Father is celebrating the Son, and now he has bestowed upon the name which is above every name. It can only be one name that distinguishes him from all other beings. And it is ranked above all. Throughout the Old and New Testament, names were changed. For example, in the Old Testament, Abram, his name was changed to Abraham. Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. In the New Testament, Simon's name was changed to what? Peter. Saul was named Paul. Now, God gives Christ a name. He is called Jesus Christ, Son of Man, Son of God, Messiah. But here, he receives a new name, Lord, the name God, the name that is set above every name. Of course, the Lord God, Kyrios, This word was translated from the uh, Old Testament Hebrew in the Septuagint. Over 6,000 times it's used in the Old and New Testament. But the Lord is now the name bestowed upon him. So this word, Lord, is the great Lord of the universe. He is the Lord, God, King, ruler over all. He is the sovereign. The name of Jesus in which every knee will bow, those in heaven and those on earth. Hold your place here in Philippians and turn back with me, if you would, to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah the prophet of Isaiah, and turn to chapter 45. Chapter 45 in Isaiah, and with me, look at verse 23. And this is the Lord claiming this. Actually, move up to verse 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, 
The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. So this is referring back to the Old Testament. Paul is looking back to this great proclamation made by Isaiah, only through God. As we look at this, we recognize that God is now being making this proclamation about the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a prophecy of the Lord who is to come. Now, this prophecy was made over 600 years before Christ's incarnation. So Isaiah is making this proclamation and this prophecy 600 years before Christ came to the earth. When we think of this period of time when Paul penned this book, the Romans did not care about religion at all. However, when the Christians would not bow their knee to Caesar, that changed everything. When they would not show any kind of uh, respect in the sense of bowing to Caesar, then they turned against the Christians and they began to persecute them. That is when Nero lit the path to his palace by staking Christians to crosses and lighting them with tar. They tolerated Christians in our nations until activist groups started promoting abortion and homosexualities. And when Christians started standing up, all of a sudden people started standing against those moral issues. And all of a sudden Christians became somewhat of a target. They weren't persecuted as they were in various parts, or they are persecuted in various parts of the world, but we're starting to see more and more persecution of Christians in this country. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, So what do you confess is that Jesus Christ is Lord, which is, of course, means, which, of course, means that Jesus Christ is God. The word translated here as Lord is the word that is so often used of God himself in the Old Testament. You remember that the Jews avoided the pronouncement of the name God. They regarded it as so holy, so sacred, that they very rarely used it. They adopted various symbols to express the idea, and one of the common words they used, instead of using the name Jehovah, was the word Lord, so that when they spoke of the Lord, they meant God. And when Paul says that the Christian confession is that Jesus Christ is Lord, he means that God, the Supreme One with the Father, has been sent in this position of sovereignty in this whole of God's economy, that every knee should bow at the name of Jesus 
because he is Lord, he is God. End quote. Who is Christ to us? What does he mean to us? And what do we believe concerning him? Have we bowed a knee to Christ? This is not speaking of a physical posture. Paul's not talking here about kneeling down before God. Paul is talking about surrendering to God. He's talking about being set apart. <clears throat> we may say that we've bowed a knee to Christ because we've been saved. We may be submitted to Christ, but are we submitted daily in our lives? Are we submitted to Christ in his word? in obedience to his word. That's where our Christian lives are shown. It's shown in the reality of our obedience to his word. So when someone says, I love the Lord, or I serve Jesus, how is that lived out? By obedience to his word. <clears throat> Let's uh, look at another text, if you would. <clears throat> I'm going to have you turn with a few passages with me today because it's in, in light of this text, it's crucial to look at some of these passages. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7, if you would. And it's a familiar passage to us. Verses 21 through 23. The Lord was teaching here. And he said this. <clears throat> Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father. <clears throat> he who is the one will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And we cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. <clears throat> we have to understand that our, our walk, our Christian profession is evidenced by our obedience to God. Christ knew that there were many who would claim to follow him. But remember, he would say, the wide, wide is the gate, but narrow is the way. So here, he proclaimed that many would say that they, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things? How many people have we met that claim to be Christians and their lives are just a mess? And yet, you might see them on various days and they said, oh, we had such a wonderful worship service last Sunday and this happened and that happened. And yet during the week, do they really live out their faith? That is where our Christianity truly matters. <clears throat> As Isaiah predicted in chapter 45, verse 23, the second part of the universal worship of the exalted Christ is that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Now, the word tongue there is glossia, which is frequently used to represent a language. It doesn't matter what language anyone speaks, whether it's human or angelic. All will declare lordship to Jesus. The angels that are redeemed in heaven and earth and even the enemies of God will confess that and bow their knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This isn't a confession of faith. This is a, an acknowledgement of who God is. That isn't something where they're confessing faith in Christ for salvation. This is an acknowledgement of Jesus Christ is God. And his name is above every name. At that point, it's too late for salvation. That's already passed. But this is a confession and acknowledgement of who God is. <clears throat> Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. But Paul makes it clear later in Romans that that confession <clears throat> in the day of judgment won't change a thing. Spiritual status of those making this confession <clears throat> isn't going to change on that day. For those that belong to God, there will be a willing, continuing, and loving declaration of their lordship. But those who have rejected him are confessing even unwillingly that he is Lord. As we've already seen, Jesus possesses full divine authority and title. But it's not time yet for his full authority to be manifested. Jesus already sits at the right hand of the Father, but not everything has been brought in subjection to him. Christ is Lord, but contrary to popular teaching and preaching, we don't make him Lord. Some people use the phrase that they're uh, referred to uh, as Lordship Salvation, acknowledging Jesus as Lord and submission to obedience is considered Lordship Salvation. It's not a salvation by works. The evidence of our salvation is our obedience. We don't gain salvation by works. By grace alone, through faith alone. The central part of the gospel is lordship to Jesus Christ. When somebody places their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord... That means they are Lord of their lives. And what does that mean to us? He is complete Lord of our lives. He's the sovereign. And so what does that mean to us? It means that we are submitted to that Lordship. It isn't a legalistic Lordship. It's a willing submission to God and to his word. <clears throat> Uh, 
Everything in the redemptive and sanctification process is for the purpose of God being exalted to the glory of the Father. When we think of this whole process of justification and sanctification, sometimes people get a bit confused. They think, well, okay, I'm justified, so uh, you know, now I have to do this or that. And last week, uh, Dave spoke on the process of sanctification, and it is a process. We're in a process of growth, spiritual growth, and everyone is at a different place, and yet we are in a process. We don't stop. We don't go backwards. We are in a process of growing in Christ Jesus. So this is what is called sanctification. Ultimately, we look forward to our glorification. John John 13, 31 and 32 says, So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. Glorify him immediately. God looked forward to that glorification with his Father. He looked forward to being reunited with his Father. John 5.23 says, Whoever honors the Son honors the Father. Whoever dishonors the Son dishonors the Father. Christ came into a world that is much like ours. We sometimes lose sight of that. We think, well, it was different then. In what way? Was there not sin during the time of Christ? Sin was rampant. The Roman Empire was vile. And Christ lived amongst sinners. Much like it is today. It hasn't changed because man is still depraved. So as we think of Christ in the world, it was a world dominated by Satan and sin. Men were selfish and evil, just as they are today. It was a world full of grief and unhappiness. The world actually was fought against Christ. The world still fights against Christ. You mention the name of Jesus Christ and the unregenerate recoils. Why is it the name of Jesus Christ that people recoil? No one has been tried or tempted like Jesus Christ and yet without sin. He humbled himself and he faced the cross God placed him at the right, his right hand. And he's now sovereign over all. Satan has been robbed of his power. And he's received a mortal wound. And his day is coming when he'll be finally destroyed. Our salvation glorifies him. Think about it. Think about we once were. And what God has done in our hearts. 
We were once God haters. Now we love God. Now we serve God by his grace. It is humbling to think about God calling us, saving us, and bringing us to himself. This doctrine of salvation is so comforting, and this doctrine of Jesus Christ is so comforting. When we think about it, the humbling of Christ and the example that Paul is pointing us to here is the one he wants us to follow. So let's turn back now to Philippians, if you would. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those who are on earth, that every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. So as we think of this, we think of this is the example Paul is bringing us to. This is the example he wants us to follow. Because we go back to verse 6, or excuse me, 5. He says, have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul is pointing us to for our example. He is the example we're to follow. We can't do it perfectly. But we can follow Christ by God's grace. His example of humbling ourselves, considering others as more important than ourselves, and giving of ourselves for others. That's what Paul was directing this flock to do. He loved them. He loved the Philippians. And he wanted them to exemplify this example of Christ. He wanted them to have this unity, but as Christ, as their model. That's why he lifted this up. So he wasn't, again, trying to bring forth some kind of a treatise on Christ. He wanted to bring the highest examples he could. And there's no other example he could have given that was any higher than our Lord Jesus Christ. That is for us to follow. This is for the body of Christ, this instruction. So as we consider this, this is our highest example to follow. And by God's grace, we can look to that as one for each of us to examine. How can we live this out? And what way can we exempt, what way can we follow this? In what way can I live this out? In what way can I honor God by doing so? Any questions? I know I'm going to have a short lesson today. But in conclusion, I just want to offer this. Paul was suffering greatly in his condition. And yet he himself was concerned about the Philippian saints. He was living this out, this truth. He loved the saints in Philippi, didn't care about his own condition, wasn't really concerned whether he would get out or wouldn't get out of prison in Rome, but he wanted the saints 
to honor God in their lives. He wanted them to have unity so that they could bring forth the gospel without having any kind of shadow cast upon the church. He wanted them to bring glory to God. <clears throat> By doing so, the gospel would go forth. <clears throat> so let's close. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we just thank you once again for your word. I thank you for your truth, Father, that <clears throat> by your grace we follow. We just ask this, that you'd be glorified throughout this worship service, and we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.